You're listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from BIV and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, the recipient of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business Excellence in Aboriginal Relations Award. He'll discuss just that, what excellence in Aboriginal relations looks like in Canada in 2019. We'll also get into the opportunities for intertribal international trade. While America remains Canada's largest trading partner on the topic of trade, we know that this partnership can be fraught with uncertainty, tension, tariffs, and legal challenges. Now, for many businesses, this environment is difficult to navigate. So on October 2nd, BIV will host experts who can offer greater insight into navigating the United States for business. The discussion will examine best practices to optimize opportunity in times of geopolitical challenge, but it will also look at how to help businesses steer away from difficult straits. Canada's first year of legalized cannabis has seen significant industrial development and investment. But along with that, we've also seen a range of regulations imposed around consumer outlets. We've seen a supply shortage, as well as a persistent black market that continues to complicate the landscape. So what have we learned? What lessons can be applied to the next stage of legalization? On October 9th, BIV's Cannabis One Year On panel examines industry opportunities, challenges, and next steps. For all of our events and for additional information, visit BIV.com slash events. Here's our show. Later this week in Richmond, my guest today will be recognized with the Excellence in Aboriginal Relations Award from the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. Wayne Garnance-Williams is a senior lawyer and principal director of Garwell Law Professional Corporation based in Ottawa. He's also the founding chair of the International Intertribal Trade and Investment Group, a tribunal member of the NAFTA Secretariat, and the former president of the National Council for Aboriginal Federal Employees. For nine years, he practiced in the Vancouver office of the litigation section of the Federal Department of Justice, and he joins me today in studio in Vancouver. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Haley. Great to be here. Congratulations on your award. Thank you. I want to ask this year's recipient of Excellence in Aboriginal Relations, what does Excellence in Aboriginal Relations look like in 2019? Well, in 2019, this year, Excellence in Aboriginal Relations is basically reaching for the stars. It is going beyond what is the status quo and going for excellence. And in excellence here, we're dealing with business, of course, and we're dealing with international trade, and specifically international Indigenous trade. I want to ask you more about that because it's something we're hearing more of. I know in BC, there's an interesting pilot going on for free trade zones among Indigenous communities. Tell me about how this space is evolving and what some of the considerations are when we talk about international Aboriginal or Indigenous relations. Awesome. Yeah. I have to go back a little bit in history because to go forward, you have to remember your past. Mm -hmm. And that's part of of the problem with Canada today is politicians generally have a short history. They they don't remember their history. And Indigenous history goes back to time immemorial. And prior to European contact, Indigenous people were the first traders in the Americas. And we had rich trading networks throughout the Americas. Two examples I always use is the, as BC is well aware, the Ulican Grease Trails. Those, of course, were the Coast Salish people harvested Ulican, a form of herring. They'd boil it down to an oil, a very flammable liquid, and they'd sell or trade the excess 
uh, to other neighboring tribes, and they'd have trails hiked out through the valleys. These were the Ulic and Greece trails. Some of them are now are major highways. Others are still hiking trails. And people in the, in the Coast Salish people still practice the harvesting of Ulican. And that's just one example. There's examples throughout the Americas. When we think of modern free trade agreements, do they properly account for that long, rich history of Indigenous trade? No, they don't, unfortunately. Nation states have forgotten about Indigenous trade uh, in the original NAFTA, in all trade agreements, up to the most recent North American Free Trade Agreement, or what we call uh, USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. Canada did not consult with Indigenous peoples concerning international trade issues. In this particular regime, under the, under the Justin Trudeau regime, we've had consultation, we've had involvement. And when Donald Trump pulled the pin and said, I want to renegotiate NAFTA, the government of Canada came out and said, generally, what should go into a revised NAFTA? So my little organization, ITIO, the International Intertribal Trade and Investment Organization, we put together a paper because we've been, we've been kicking this concept around for a couple of years in, in various uh, uh, colloquiums and conferences. So we had our thoughts together. So we submitted it. Now, out of 2,500 submissions to the government of Canada on what should go into the new NAFTA, we were the only one to make a pitch for an Indigenous trade chapter. And it was based on law, history, policy, and good common sense. Kind of cool. So nowadays... Uh, with the new USMCA, we, uh, we worked with the government of Canada in developing over a two-year period an indigenous trade policy. And we put together in a collaborative basis, not just our little organization, but any First Nation, any rights holder, any, any uh, First Nation landholder, any, any uh, title interest holder that wanted to come to the table was welcome to come and build this Indigenous trade policy together with the government of Canada on a collaborative basis. And it was really cool because the first time, and I'm a, I'm a ex-Department of Justice lawyer who's done a lot of policy work, for the first time that I've ever witnessed, the government of Canada was actually sat down and literally said to us, we don't know what we're doing. We'd like to work together on a collaborative basis with, par with real partners on building this policy together. And that's what we did once a week for an hour. We sat down with the policy wonks in Ottawa and we brought our expertise together and they present their official, you know, government of Canada, international trade policy on whatever. <laughs> and then we would look at it from an indigenous lens and we would feed back what we needed, what we thought was important. And they would take that back and they'd work into a revised policy and bring it back the next week with their revisions. And then they pass it by us to see whether or not we liked it. And we did this for about a year and a half. The end result was an indigenous trade policy, which is part of the, um, um, part of the, uh, uh, hello, I'm pulling a blank here. It's Monday morning. Yeah, it's Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> the Indigenous Trade Chapter was part of the inclusive trade agenda of the government of Canada. And the inclusive trade agenda, of course, includes uh, 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 equal trade for women, in, to, to get more women involved mm -hmm. in trade, uh, visible minorities, uh, physically challenged people, to give them a leg up in the international markets and to give them an opportunity to sell their, their wares and their services. So Indigenous trade is, there's two levels to that. There is Indigenous trade with the world, like, for example, say the coast, uh, say um, uh, uh, my tribe, say the Moosman First Nation, wants to trade with, say, China. Great. Under the current existing rules, knock your socks off. Have fun. But there's also the second thing which we were working on, and that is the original trading nations concept, where nation First Nations trade with First Nations. For example, the, the, the nations that I work in Oklahoma, there are 38 tribes in Oklahoma, just four, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Citizen Potawatomi, and Cherokee Nations. They represent 
I kid you not, 15 B's and billion dollars in gross economic input, an annual revenue of two B's and billion dollars with over 15,000 jobs. Wow. That's a huge economic might of just four tribal nations. And can, can you imagine just having trade agreements between tribes, mm-hmm. First Nations, the Chickasaw Nation, uh, or the, and for example, the, the um, was it, uh, the Citizen Potawatomi Nation, we, we, you mentioned uh, foreign trade zones. Mm-hmm. The Citizen Potawatomi Nation, which we've been, wor- we've been working with, uh, has developed a working model of an accepted foreign trade zone within their traditional territory. And that's really cool from a tax planning standpoint, mm-hmm. from a policy standing uh, policy standpoint. And they get to create their own laws within the nation state of uh, uh, the, 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 the tribal nation and apply their own uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, corporate act within their own jurisdiction. Now, U.S. law is different than Canada law. They've had a few advantages where they, the, tri- the U.S. tribes can create their own sovereign uh, corporate legislation. Mm. But that being said, there's a working foreign trade zone in the United States on Indigenous territory. So Canadian First Nations can can reconstitute themselves in the United States in a in a tribal nation and take advantage of those indigenous incentives that are there on top of the regular corporate uh, opportunities. And this is, uh, I'd say, it, it's more than fair because it recognizes the original traders' position of, of nation-to-nation trading, and the United States welcomes that. And Canada is starting to see the the economic advantage of that, empowering First Nations to create their own economic course and to raise their people up by building businesses that are sound from their standpoint and from an ethical standpoint to to trade with people that they have a cultural affinity with. Uh, the language, uh, the, 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 there, there's common root languages that go up and down as opposed to east and west. They go north and south. So to have a similar language beginning with, with, with the trading nations or an understanding of cultural nuance of process, procedure, that is not your normal standard uh, European-based trading relationship. It's an indigenous trading relationship where it, it comes down to the core word being relationship, knowing your partners, building trust, building communication. And it's not just about the dollars and cents. It's about preservation of culture, preservation of language, preservation of land. So it's two nations that are agree- agreeing to trade together, but there's so much more. And it's really cool. So we're starting that, and we're really excited about this. I think this is going to be, uh, the, the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to see a, an exponential growth in the sovereign wealth of First Nations in Canada, grabbing hold of the opportunity to do tribal nation to tribal nation trading. And I'm glad you touched on that. One of the themes of this event on Thursday, where you'll be given your award and recognized, is economic reconciliation. What role do you see the broader business community playing in that? How can they facilitate this revolution, essentially, an empowerment of all of this wealth being held and and championed by Indigenous businesses? Excellent question. The example I can give you is something my First Nation, again, uh, Moosman First Nation in uh, Central Saskatchewan. We've partnered with a Canadian company called ProPipe, and they have, as you know, Trump put up aluminum and steel tariffs, right. and only recently have, been ta- have they been taken down. But when NAFTA got signed off, agreed to at least, um, the Trump administration did not take the tariffs down. They held on to them for about, oh, four or five months after NAFTA was signed, or USMCA was signed. And so 
that's a problem because we thought, oh, we have USMCA. The tariff should come down. They didn't. Why? Because we live in a world where nothing is for certain. So how can we provide better stability for Indigenous peoples? By doing nation-to-nation trading in a way that facilitates that stability. So ProPipe, which manufactures steel and pipe, decided to say, hey, we want more uh, security in the market. We can't compete with those high, high punitive tariffs going with, our, with the U.S. market. So we need to penetrate that market in a different way. So what they did is they negotiated with the uh, foreign trade zone in uh, the United States, in Oklahoma, um, the, the um, uh, Citizen Potawatomi foreign trade zone in Iron Horse Industrial Park. And... Only last, I guess it was two weeks ago, they signed, they, they, there was a groundbreaking ceremony, and now we're building the very first, and it's, it's a joint effort between First Nations, between uh, a Canadian company, a solid Canadian company, and an opportunity to access those markets in the United States by having the solidity and security of market access without the punitive, potential, potential punitive uh, steel tariffs. Because when you set up in a foreign trade zone and you bring it and, and you say bring in steel ingots into the foreign trade zone, can you manufacture them in the foreign trade zone into pipe. Those pipe go out into wherever without those tariffs in the in the destination where they're where they're chosen. So so you're not coming from Canada, you're coming from the foreign trade zone. Wow. So that's a huge savings to get around those punitive tariffs. And that's just one example, but can you imagine First Nations? Taking advantage of those kind of opportunities, and that's just one example. There, there are there are tax consequences that are positive for Indigenous peoples, reconstituting themselves in a foreign trade zone owned in Indigenous territory in the United States. Um, there, there is a whole bunch of policy opportunities that the tribal nations of the United States are offering to attract Canadian tribes to come down and do business. Uh, it's funny because we, we have a conference every year in Oklahoma and we bring all, all these tribes in that are, that are basically host tribes in the United States. And the Canadian tribal representatives, they tour these faculty, these facilities. And it's amazing because it's, it's so sophisticated. It's so international. And yet the, the tribal leaders say to the Canadian, the U.S. tribal leaders say to the Canadians, this can be you in five to 10 years. There's no magic to it. It's just good, solid business practice. Hmm. And it's exciting. Mm-hmm. This is the future. And it's really, really great because it'll uplift the, the, uh, the economic opportunities, job creation, and keeping the dollars within the tribal communities. That's a really important thing because when you've got a big business that just sets up shop, it's got to have a spin-off. You've got to have a whole bunch of small to medium-sized businesses that are tribal as well that can can share the wealth and pass that multiplier effect of that dollar from the large company to say somebody who's who's a supplier who who an indigenous supplier who helps that 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 large company and then that indigenous supplier employs so many indigenous workers they get a salary then they go spend their money at a local indigenous store who's buying indigenous goods and that money that that do, that one dollar keeps passing by within the tribal community and creating wealth that's really important and that's what this larger opportunity is all about. It's it's wealth generation for people, for, for Indigenous people in their tribal nations. It sounds like a really exciting opportunity for communities here. What would you say are the biggest barriers to Canadian communities establishing this in that, say, five to 10 year timeline? Uh, it's the, uh, the, the fluctuation of the relative receptivity of provincial and federal governments. Mm. Um, 
We currently are blessed with a government that for the first time in the history of governments in since Confederation, have we seen a government that is receptive, comparatively speaking, to other governments with respect to the recognition of inherent indigenous rights, including what we're focusing on, the inherent indigenous economic right of intertribal trade. How do you get around that? Because governments are fickle. We have election cycles. We're in an election cycle right now. Promises are made, not necessarily committed to. How can communities establish this with a view to a long-term and creating economic ecosystems, given the the realities of political cycles? That's where my organization comes in, Ithio. One of our core mandates is education. Hmm. We believe in educating. We we bring together in in our conferences the tribal leaders, the business leaders, the policy leaders of governments, not just tribal governments, but federal and provincial governments, state governments, to to come together under one roof and discuss these international intertribal trade issues and identify, or I call, spot the bunnies, spot the problems that are out there, and then work together collaboratively on trying to find policy solutions that meet businesses' needs, that meet the government's needs, and provides for wealth generation. And that wealth generation meets a policy aspect to the various state, provincial, federal, U.S., federal, Canada governments, and as well tribal governments, by helping people that need it the most, the small and medium business peoples, the people that would like a job uh, uh, to be gainfully employed within their uh, Indigenous communities. This is what it's all about, creating, creating jobs, creating wealth, and creating employment. I also understand from your long and generous and accomplished biography, you have a bit of a passion for working with First Nations startups and helping them scale when it comes to corporate law. Absolutely. My, my law firm, Garwa Law Professional Corporation, that's what we do. We, we come in and we, we assist these companies in getting the tax preparation ready, get their business plans in order, get their uh, the worst case scenarios, because I believe... Uh, it's 90% preparation and 10% presentation in the sense that you end up preparing for a worst case scenario. So you've got everything prepared. So if, if, if something happens, God, creator forbid that something bad should happen to that company, you've got a plan A, B, C, D, and E that you can fall back on because uh, Garwa Law Professional Corporation, my law firm, has helped you create that plan to, mm. to keep you, to, to, to keep you on the straight and narrow and to keep your, your company going forward, creating jobs, creating wealth. Do you think that the general business community and some of the big institutions, like financial institutions, are increasingly receptive to some of the opportunities and businesses that are coming up through First Nations entrepreneurs? Absolutely. We've seen this with respect to the Canadian Council of Aboriginal Business, um, where the, the there are now major uh, financial sponsors that see the value mm-hmm. of, for example, the, the CCAB's PAR program. They see the advantage of getting business businesses together, uh, non-Indigenous businesses together with Indigenous businesses and Indigenous nations and building wealth together. And the, the large institutions that are on the ball, like the sponsors for CCAB, they see this and they want it, they want in on this because they see it's not only good for business, it's, it's good corporate, it's good corporate will, good for the for the corporation and it's the right thing to do as well what are some of the things that hold back companies from properly engaging in meaningful dialogue and properly coming to the table as a co-collaborator with communities problem i guess is is a is a lack of information mm-hmm. a lack of knowledge um and because when you have a lack of knowledge you have what's the the inverse of that of course is ignorance and or a lack of being fully informed and 
therefore you rely on what you've heard potentially and don't believe everything you see in social media. So um, there are opportunities, but one, th th there's a kind of a, a an evolution of a corporation where they have to reach that point where the corporate leadership has to say, you know, we see the value in this for our company and we see the long-term value of our goodwill partnering with the with, with these First Nations or, or these Indigenous organizations and building wealth and, and sharing in the prosperity that can go around to various First Nations, various businesses, and the, the various financial institutions can take credit for that great uh, uh, involvement in helping Indigenous peoples prosper. If we were to look at the Indigenous economy in Canada, how would you describe where it is now and where do you hope or expect it might be, say, in 10 years' time? Right now, uh, uh, you, you probably know this as well as I do, it's, we're still kind of stuck in the stereotype of being hewers of wood and haulers of water in the sense that we are very much a resource-based economy. But we could do so much more. Indigenous people could do so much more. Now, Granted, and, and, and there's, an, there's an also, I say that with a proviso because there's also a traditional market out there, which is very valid. And, need, and, and for example, the individual, uh, the, 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 my family, um, uh, the, the making of bead, uh, beadwork um, for, for various things, regalia, uh, whatnot, that's a, that's a niche market. And when you've done everything you can, everything you can with respect to your, your, uh, your, your community, then you go out on the powwow circuit and you go to different places with your, your access and you try, you try and uh, uh, you know, set up a booth and, and you sell that at various powwows or, or various functions. This, for example, and, and just let me stop there, this itself, I remember as a kid that happening. And that is a form of international intertribal trade in a small microcosm. So that it's it's always been there. It's just we're blowing on the embers to increase the flame, to increase the richness of this. So that's one aspect to for for that that one individual bead worker that has maybe saturated their market and worked hard every day, have a, has a, you know, a mom and pop operation on the kitchen table, and they want to expand. And they 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 think the best way they they can they can right now is maybe uh, go to the power circuit and do a bit of online uh, an online website but can you imagine a uh, uh, a syndicate of beaters trading with a syndicate of first nation beaters around the world that indig indigenous cultural preservation is 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 locked in when you've got a larger market and you're you're exchanging your cultures and you're protected so that's one aspect which is really cool. Mm -hmm. The other, the other one, of course, is the is the industry, general industry itself. We are not just uh, beads and blankets, as it were. Uh, we're so much more. And the example I love to use again is the United States example with um, uh, Chickasaw Nation Industries. Chickasaw Nation Industries of Oklahoma uh, has about, oh, I guess about 20 different companies. And they proudly say they make everything from beads to missiles and everything in between. And they, for example, um, one of their companies, I believe it's called Siltronics, they do. Uh, they have a staff of twenty PhDs that are all indigenous that do um, um, what do you call it? Um, aerodynamic testing on any projectile wow. in a, on a computer 
rendered environment. So the U.S. Department of, uh, I forgot what it's called, but the government department that deals with their missile development, mm -hmm. they contract with them regularly. A Boeing contracts with them regularly. And it's all about how we can streamline or pattern airflow around vehicles, any anything moving through through a resistance. So that's not beads and blankets. That's high tech. That's indigenous evolution. And that's it goes back to the treaties when you think about that because there's throughout the United States and Canada there are certain clauses within treaties that allow for intertribal trade mm. but they back then those treaties only listed what was being traded at the time you know axes pelts blankets beads glass some cases in the United States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s determined these, these, uh, the, the, these trade clauses as being frozen in time, which means the tribe can only manufacture and sell under this trade, under this treaty, those, uh, th those items. Now, we all know that that's bad law. We've evolved since then as a people, as a society, as, 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 uh, as, um, uh, nation states. So that the modern decisions that are coming out, it gives, when we look at the same clause and the same facts today, we would see that that was just the, 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 the listing of items for that period of time in the 1780s. Right. And today, what that clause would mean in a, a, a normative textual purposive approach to interpreting a treaty would mean that there is a, th those bees, blankets, and, and axes really could mean any types of trade that one would uh, naturally partake in whether or not it's uh, missile defense or beads and blankets. So that's really cool. And that's where we're going. And that's the future of indigenous intertribal trade is it's not locked into just beads, blankets, and axes. It's a modern trade where indigenous peoples are creative, resourceful, highly educated, and building businesses that are for the next century. And it's that intertribal trade that is going to really propel First Nations in the next century. I would love to see an example like that in Canada. And I'm sure there are examples of First Nations businesses engaged in high tech. What do you think they need? If we look at the needs of any business, skill set, talent, funding, whatever it may be, do First Nations businesses here typically have access to what they need to become, say, the next missile defense projectile well, team? Well, that's what the CCAB is working on right now in the sense that, and, and other great organizations like CANDU, where we are working with government. It's not, oh, we're going to take this and we're going to challenge it in court. No, those days, that, that doesn't make any sense. I'm, I'm speaking from as, as an ex-litigator, 20 years of service in the federal public service, lots of years doing litigation. I know for a fact that charging to court with, I've got a right, doesn't make sense. What you have to do is sit down with the nation state and negotiate a, a reasonable agreement. Now, of course, it comes down to if you can't negotiate and you reach an impasse, then you've got to have some sort of dispute resolution mechanism. Again, Garwell Law Professional Corporation would argue that court is not the way to go, but negotiating a framework in advance with these negotiations to have a dispute resolution clause so that those impasses can be quickly resolved and you can keep moving on negotiating the, 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 the relationship 
between the crown and indigenous peoples with respect to intertribal trade and some of the nuances of that. So if there is a need for increased funding for, uh, for, for, for skill training or uh, um, uh, some sort of um, uh, pro- program that will streamline uh, indigenous trade and track indigenous goods across borders, then we help develop it together and we work collaboratively because the, the next century will be defined by how we collaborate together as a species, not how we fight each other for for dwindling resources. Wayne, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on and congratulations again on your award. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. That's Wayne Garnons Williams. He's a senior lawyer and principal director at Garwell Law Professional Corporation. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also listen to all of our episodes at BIV.com slash audio. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks for listening.